This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have a guest today that's going to follow up on an earlier uh, recording that we did with Dr. Uh, Bill Walsh on the end of autism, and that's at 141. But tonight we're going to talk with a person who is deeply into an awareness of what goes on with the families, with community, and the evolution of treating autistically challenged individuals uh, more completely, more comprehensively. And her name is Dr. Deborah Moore. Welcome, Dr. Moore. We appreciate you coming on board. Thank you for the opportunity. So what we'll do is do a couple words from our sponsors here, and then we'll get into this conversation, which I am deeply looking forward to. So first of all, you listeners already know how much we love the reality of true data, hard data here at CBJ. And today we welcome our clinical friend and new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. They have over 3 million studies, are deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges, all these are absolutely relevant to uh, spectrum disorders. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned, more about them in just a moment. And then we also are pleased to have a sponsor, the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center in Norfolk, Virginia. They provide residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and indeed global level. They're TRICARE friendly, and what's really interesting about uh, Barry Robinson, we work with them here in Norfolk, we send people over there, and we work with them directly, is that they really think more comprehensively about the, the person in the, in the relationship with their family, where they are developmentally, and uh, we, we think they're one of the most comprehensive residential care uh, places in the, in, uh, nationally. We think we're pleased that they're on board. So moving smartly along, let me read you a little bit of an introduction, and we'll find out more about Dr. Moore as we go along. Dr. Deborah Moore is a retired psychologist who now devotes her time to writing and sharing information on autism. She began and directed a psychotherapy center in Sacramento, California, where she taught and mentored therapists in training. Over the years, she developed a specialty in autism spectrum disorders, and following retirement, she co-authored The Loving Push, How Parents and Professionals can help Spectrum kids become successful adults with, get this, Dr. Temple Grandin. Anybody that's been in psychotherapy business knows Dr. Temple Grandin, and we're really looking forward to seeing, listening to her partner today, uh, Dr. Deborah Moore, talk about this increasingly evident, uh, challenging treatment problem that we see all the time in our offices, anybody that's in practice. So just a little bit more, now living in Washington, D.C., she contributes to Autism Parenting Magazine, Autism Asperger's Digest. She facilitates LinkedIn groups like the Autism Spectrum Across a Lifespan, and another one, Autism Helping Hands Mentors, and she has contributed to the nine degrees of autism and internet addiction in children and adolescents. Is she a busy woman or what? Deborah, you've got nothing to do. That's right. <laughs> So, Deborah, tell us a little bit about, we know you're in D.C. now, so tell us a little bit about what your, your mission is and what you really find 
the focus of your life is at this moment regarding the broad topic of autism and uh, autism treatment pro possibilities? You know, I think my mission is the same as it's been my whole life, which is to educate people so that folks can live life as fully as possible. That was my mission with my psychotherapy clients, whether they were autistic or not. Uh, folks on the autism spectrum have some additional challenges, of course. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes we have, as a profession, looked through the lens of a deficit model instead of a strength-based model. I think that's changing gradually, and I want to be part of that change. That's what the book was about, The Loving Push, and that's what every post I put on LinkedIn and on my Facebook page, that's what my mission is. Uh, every kid, no matter how their brain is wired, and I do think that autism is a difference in brain wiring and chemistry. It's not a disorder, per se, and it's certainly not psychological. It's neurological. Uh, these kids have amazing strengths often, and we need to recognize them and challenge them. And I saw too many kids where that wasn't happening in my practice. And that drove me to specifically the topic of the loving push. So you were, you were frustrated then, is what you're saying. You were, you were working with children, and you were trying to figure out what to do with them, and you just had uh, increasing levels of, um, I guess you were saying, frustration and, and lack of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, psychologists are really good at diagnosing. Well, that only gets you so far. Yeah. You need some practical tools. You know, when you speak to a group, when you work with somebody, they don't care about theory. They care about something concrete that they can put into action right away. Uh, so I was finding that I had more of a need for that. So I started trying things and taking risks and some, developing some strategies. And one of the things that I found was with the kids, it was usually the kids and teenagers that I was working with. I worked with a lot of autistic adults as well. But with the, the kids and teenagers, I was getting stuck because I would see them for an hour a week, but then they would go home and the patterns that I was trying to break would get reinforced. Yes. And their parents were not getting the advantage, unfortunately, that the kid was. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, this doesn't make any sense. So I started pulling in parents, working as a family. And then what I discovered was, oh my gosh, the parents are more resistant than the kids are. Mm. Yes. So I had to figure out another set of tools for the parents as well. And that's the direction I went. And that's really the thrust of your book. Exactly. I mean, because you said, you said to yourself, look, there is a bigger picture here. And just working with this in a truncated, specified individual without looking at the entire community, that you were just not doing a, a complete job. That's right. So there, there were really two parts to it. One was that autism takes a village, and that was to not just work from my perspective, but also to get in communication with anybody else who's working with this family. So the teachers, the OTs, the PTs, um, you know, extended family. I worked with aunts and uncles, with grandparents, uh, with siblings. 
uh, with peers, with friends. I would have them bring a friend in sometimes. We did a lot of group work as well. And that made all the difference in the world. But I had to teach those folks how to communicate with each other because usually they were used to just doing their own thing. And then in addition to getting those folks on mic, so that we were all on the same team. We weren't working at odds. Um, and that also the, the youth with autism knew that they had this support system that was interwoven. That feels a lot more supportive than a set of individual folks working with you. Well, you know, Deborah, one of the things I see in my practice, I'm sure this, I'm sure you're well aware of it, is, is the, uh, to be a bit uh, pejorative about it here and push the word a little bit, but I see people getting diagnosed uh, as autistic uh, all the time that are not relevant. To, you know, they just may have some social maladjustments. I mean, what's your thought about that? Do you feel that it's being overly diagnosed or do you feel that it's underly diagnosed from your perspective? I think both are true. I certainly had folks come to me, usually adults, uh, who thought and really wanted to be diagnosed with Asperger's. They didn't so much want to be diagnosed with autism, but they, when, when Asperger's was the term that was being used, they wanted to be diagnosed with Asperger's. And I can understand that because it explained some of their anxiety, some of their social awkwardness. But oftentimes, uh, and it was hard news to deliver because that's really not what they wanted to hear, it was more of an anxiety disorder or mm -hmm. an OCD disorder or the, the result of lack of skills or the result of trauma that had never been dealt with. Well, well said, well said. I, I, I see that happen all the time. Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, but I was going to say, but I do think it's, it's clearly still underdiagnosed and, and kids are, are uh, flying under the radar and a lot of adults. You know, what would happen many times is a child would come in for a diagnosis and then I would meet the parents to give the feedback and I'd realize pretty quickly, it was usually dad, not always, because of the genetic link. Um, gee, the kid wasn't the only one in the family on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the father to realize that, or the mother in some cases, could really improve their quality of life. If you know that was delivered slowly and in the right way and a positive again and a strength-based model, um, and, and that's very exciting to be able to give some change someone's narrative from something's wrong with me and I don't know what it is, so I must just be weird. To oh, okay, this explains so much of my struggles. I'm just wired differently, and how do I use that to my advantage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then when you have, do people, your, your uh, input right now, I'm trying to think about how ind individuals interface with you. You don't have an active practice right now then, is that right? I don't. You're um, more a teacher, yeah. Yeah, I moved um, across the country and uh, let my license go into, um, you know, inactive status. Mm -hmm. But I'm still, I can't stay away from it. <laughs> So when you are challenged, because I think there are a couple of issues that come up immediately as a teacher, as a person who is a professional attempting to make a contribution, so often individuals wonder where the responsibility begins and ends and who they can hold responsible. It's, it's interesting because uh, we see this often and uh, we see it even, we're, we're always very careful, even with this uh, Core Brain Journal 
to be careful not to take definitive statements that are that could be taken uh, explicitly for an individual, but really look at the the global picture and the larger picture in terms of how to apply. So back to you, how do you actually think about those things when somebody comes to you with a specific question in one of those, uh, for example, Facebook groups? Um, you know, I often ask questions instead of give answers because mm -hmm. one, I need more information and I need the person to start thinking uh, about what they know about themselves and haven't really thought about before. And that's what I do with the families that I use to work with as well is get them to really be better observers to make that intentional. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we prioritize what the needs are. So then we start getting concrete. Once we, because first we have to get a lot of stuff out of the way. We have to eliminate a lot of red herrings many times. And then when we can really cl see clearly, let's say a kid is having a meltdown. Well, we have to figure out what's triggering it and, and why that child is having a meltdown before we move automatically to a solution. And I will often see in Facebook groups, for example, people answering a question with a rather, um, dare I use the word arrogant, uh, sense of they know what the answer is when they haven't asked enough questions to really understand what we're dealing with. So that's really, really important. Um, but I think one, if I can kind of get into a little bit of some of the main ways that I find are helpful and that are talked about in depth in the Loving Push uh, to help kids is first we have to remember that being on the spectrum generally means that executive functioning is compromised to some extent. So you're not going to get the self-initiative and the planning unless you help bring that about. You being whoever, therapist, parent, teacher. And oftentimes parents have been so busy when the child is younger just trying to keep behavior under control and to make their life a bit easier and they're exhausted that the idea of introducing new things is the last thing they want to do because they know what's going to happen. Yeah. There's going to be resistance. There may not be, you know, a, a six-year-old meltdown, but there's going to be a 16-year-old who's going to slam their bedroom door and go back to their video game and say, you know, no way in the world am I going to try that. But... What I certainly found with, you know, all the tools in my tool belt, without pretty darn specific push and set of skills, that wasn't going to change. I couldn't talk a child or a teenager into seeing the value in change. That wasn't going to happen. That was unrealistic. I had to give up on that. I had to do it. I had to lovingly push and sometimes it was even uncomfortable for me as a therapist because it felt like gosh I'm, I'm really you know getting aggressive here but with kids with executive functioning challenges and initiative challenges one of my big messages to parents is you've got to take the risk I know it's scary 
there's pushback that's inevitable I mean, for 99.9% of youth is inevitable but you've got to get over your own anxiety because your role has changed now that your child has grown it's not the same as it was when they were little now your role is to lovingly push them to get them out of their comfort zone because they're not going to get out of it by themselves usually well, that's very interesting. Let's take it a step further because what you've just done is uh, a good job of introducing the larger picture of uh, interpersonal work to handle and encourage uh, individuals' development. But let's take it a little bit closer, get a magnifying glass out a little bit, and talk about some of the techniques that you actually do in reality to help. I know not every... Uh, spectrum child is the same, but give us some kind of example of a thing that you might do with a resistant, let's say, 14 to 16 year old boy. Sure. sure. That you could get them to take that next step. I will. I will exactly use a. Maybe he was 16 at the time, boy. <laughs> um, in the loving push, we used real people, and we profiled eight folks. Uh, four male, four female. Some of them were my clients, some of them weren't. One of them was named Patrick, and, and he allows me to use his name, or I wouldn't, obviously. And I'll use an example from him. Patrick, like just about everybody I've met on the spectrum, had a bad case of what I call learned helplessness. Learned helplessness goes back to the work of Martin Seligman. And he showed us that it doesn't take much for animals or people to give up after a, just a few exposures to some kind of situation where they felt powerless. Well, autistic kids are exposed to situations where they feel powerless chronically. They're, they, they're almost always bullied, whether they tell their parents or not. I tell parents, assume that your kid's been bullied. And they're in school, they face challenge after challenge. And they give up at some point. So we need to recognize that. And what we need to do is the same thing that Seligman did when he did his experiment with dogs on this. He would actually push these dogs physically to get them to try something. Because otherwise, they, they had been exposed to an area where they couldn't jump over this little fence. Um, and then they were allowed to. But they had given up by then because they were... Um, yoked together and they couldn't get over at the beginning. Well, kids are like that. They'll just kind of lay down like the dog and just kind of whimper and won't try. And if the parent lets them do that, again, they're going to be in their room, especially the boys playing video games. So an example with Patrick was that Patrick, when he first came in for me, number one, he wouldn't even come in my office by himself. And he would never go out of the house. And one of the things I wanted to get him to do was he was a teenager, was to start taking some chances, leaving the house and going to restaurants. So I got his aunt involved. And this was a good example of reaching out, seeing who was in the extended family who might be a good candidate to kind of coach this kid. So his aunt came to therapy sessions periodically. And she would report to me and we would email each other also uh, between sessions to see what was happening so I would know and at the beginning oh Patrick hated this idea he would go he would basically have close to a panic attack and 
Mary would help him concentrate on his breathing, just stand in one place, look around, observe the environment, and he'd be crying, I'm not gonna do it, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not I'm doing this. And and he would freeze. And I can't make a decision. And Mary would be coached to say to him, Look, there's no rush. We have plenty of time, but you can do this and you must decide. Search your brain. And then obviously I should say this, because of sensory issues, they would not go to noisy restaurants or, you know. Um, they would not go what? Say that last thing you said. Noisy places where he yes. was going to be yes. overstimulated. So she would bring him up. She would take him to places that had a counter. She would take him up to the counter. And by, by then he'd often walk away. He'd be back in the back of the restaurant already. She'd bring him back up. And that's one of the important points. You don't expect this to work the first time. You do it over and over and over. While she's practicing the breathing with him, reviewing the options, having him look around, see the other people, notice their conversations, helping bring him out of his tunnel vision. Autistic kids get into tunnel vision very easy. And so she would always be constantly teaching him to look around and to breathe. And I got to tell you, it took a long time. We have to realize that we can't expect youth on the spectrum to gain skills at the same rate as neurotypical kids, and that's perfectly fine. We don't need somebody driving at 16 or 17. Patrick learned to drive. It took us, I think, about four years for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I gotta tell you, Patrick now loves to go out to eat. And this was over the course of a year or two. Mary calls him, Aunt Mary calls him, a restaurant social butterfly. <laughs> And Patrick, Patrick will tell you, Mary used to make me do this, and I never knew what to order. And, and he said one of the things that he learned is, okay, if he's overwhelmed, again, he breathes, and he breathes three times. That's his number that works for him. And if he's ordering from a waiter, he will always ask them for a recommendation. So it narrows his options and makes it a little bit easier. But he'll tell you that uh, he loves trying new foods now. We used to, I, I would give him an assignment every week. Okay, you're going to try this. And we also taught him to cook. So, Fantastic. Now he, yeah. He cooks some foods. And uh, he's, he's I, I love one of the statements that he made in the book. He said, salmon. Oh, my God, salmon. Salmon was my gateway food. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He was like, kind of crazy now about when I'm around salmon. <laughs> uh, but you just would never have predicted it from the starting point. And if it would have been so, so, so easy to give up on that. And say, well, he doesn't have to go to restaurants. He doesn't have to drive. But he had the coordination to be able to drive. Obviously, not every kid can. But as long as there were specific skills for him to practice, and a lot of people were involved, and we gave him the time he needed, and we taught him about learned helplessness, and taught him that idea. Because I, one of the things I found in working with youth on the spectrum who were, and I don't like the term high functioning, but we don't have a great one to replace it yet, but the high functioning kids, they, number one, they demand a lot of you. Mm 
as a therapist. And they're not gonna put up with any BS and they want a straight story and they want it to be rational and logical. Forget applying um, emotional yeah. therapy techniques. That yeah. doesn't work. But don't try to convince somebody um, with emotion. Although I did use guilt sometimes, and that worked well, but I used it in a logic way. I would say to Patrick, for instance, why do you get to be, and I would use strong words, intentionally. It may sound tough, but remember, it's a loving push, and Patrick knew that I loved him. I adore Patrick. But I would say, why do you think you get to be a parasite? He would look at me, but that's what you're being right now. And you're growing up and you're not preparing. You're refusing to prepare yourself and you're going to rely on your parents the rest of your life. That's called being a parasite. Where do you get off doing that? What's t explain to me the logic and the rationale. Now, that one emotion of guilt actually I have found works well because my experience is most people on the spectrum are very ethical. They're very logical, but they're also, they have a great deal of integrity. Mm -hmm. Right. That's true. Hadn't thought about that before. Well, that's interesting. Now, you know, what you're saying here is that in summary, I mean, you said it very articulately, but just for our listeners, you said, hey, you know, an individual parent may not be the right person. So we're looking at a community and we're looking at techniques that would involve a community as opposed to just saying, I'm going to do whatever, quote unquote, psychotherapy with you and look at the meaning of things and see what the unconscious uh, conflicts are. We're not going to do that. We're going to introduce cognitive, thoughtful, thought provoking concepts into your prefrontal cortex. It's going to help what you said just when we started talking that person's executive function so they can make better decisions so they can think more clearly. And every example you gave is a marker for that person's increasing ability to say, okay, I've made this executive decision. I know I love salmon. That is something I know about myself. Now I'm going to take that to, do I like pea soup? <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and they have they have a foundation to build on because they have identified cognitively this is what they like to do. That's exactly right. And also teaching them to recognize when they start to cognitively shut down and move into resistance. One of my older clients, we use the concept of the garage doors coming down. And when I would feel it come down, I would let him know until he became familiar enough with it to let me know when it was coming down. And we would need to recognize that and not try to pretend it wasn't there or fight through it or talk around it, but to deal with that. Well, let me ask you another quick question because we kind of zipped by it, and I'm sure some of our listeners were the same way I was. What is it that you don't like about the term high-functioning? I might You piqued my curiosity on that one. And I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I'd love to know what it is. Sure. Um, you know, it's only been in the last, I don't know, six months or a year that it occurred to me that I, I think there's an implication in there of 
functioning, that some kinds of functioning are better than others. Because I think we tend to think of high functioning means maybe a certain IQ or the ability to do certain things like maybe drive. And I think we need to broaden our perspective about what is success? What is a good life? And I think it can be many different diverse yeah, things for each I, individual. I That's got my you. problem with it. Yeah, I, you're thinking, what you're saying is, Parker, I really don't like categorical thinking. Yes. I like comprehensive thinking. And if there's an implication that somebody's better than somebody else in some uh, way, that has a counterproductive effect on the overall evolution of a human being because they're going to slip to comparatives. And comparatives are counterproductive because then they're not really dealing with themselves. They're just into competition and whatever from the outside instead of saying, how do I look at this as a developmentally positive um, step for myself? Right, Uh, and it traps the person and it traps everyone around them. It traps the family. Into reductionistic thinking. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, let me take a quick break here, and I'm going to come back with a question because we talked very briefly about it, but you're an expert in the field, and I've heard some controversy about ABA, and I'd like you to, when we come back, talk a little bit about your experience with what you're doing, how it might fit in with somebody doing an ABA practice, what ABA is, and what your thoughts are about ABA as a tool in working with Spectrum individuals. So we'll come back in just a few minutes and and ask you that question. Sounds good. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges from family to peers to school diagnostically from defiance to depression on every level for families including military families internationally the barry robinson center's 32 acre open college-like campus in norfolk virginia provides safety and security and clean comfortable living How do we know we refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing? So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, Remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. 
DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrol challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Okay, Deborah, here we are back again. So this is a very interesting conversation. And honestly, I haven't really thought about the things that you're, you're describing, but they're so useful because everything that you're talking about has something to do with an evolution of executive function and self-management and self-mastery. And, right. But you're looking at it in a very elemental, uh, constructive way uh, through techniques and actionable terms that can actually pull a person to that next level of development. So the question I was going to ask is, let's talk uh, about your thoughts about ABA and how it either contrasts or parallels what you're talking about and maybe give, because it's a, a common term, it's so many people who are dealing with individuals who have uh, spectrum issues, and then, and then take it down to the next step if we could. Okay. Uh, I think there are countless folks on the spectrum who would not be where they are without having had early intervention ABA therapy. So I'm very supportive of it. I think, unfortunately, we, like any other field, we've been limited, we're always learning, and when you know, we moved from the theory of autism was caused by refrigerator moms who weren't, weren't um, attached to the children, to you simply had to teach kids in an applied behavioral analysis way how to respond and pick up the skills. I don't think ABA is the whole answer. We, we were really focused on that in the, in the 70s and 80s. Now I think we recognize it's a big part for a lot of kids and the earlier it starts the better, but we're appreciating so much more in terms of the lifespan and the skills that are needed at different ages and also the medical conditions underlying autism and comorbid with autism that need addressing. And, you know, you can't do ABA with a kid, for instance, whose stomach is chronically upset because it's inflamed and that's never been dealt with. Well, you can do it, but you're not going to know when the kid is screaming because they hate the ABA and when they're screaming because they're in pain. So, and I don't know how to tell you that. So well said. That is so well said. That's a, a very basic, good, comprehensive statement about what's going on because so many of these kids do have immune system dysregulation. I mean, it's almost, I mean, I, I actually have never seen one that didn't have some serious immune system dysregulation. And that, I don't think I have either. You know, and what happens is those cytokines are running around from that immunity and they're running up there and they're competing at the receptor sites and the neurotransmitter receptor sites in the brain. They rain on the parade all day, every day, because that child is internally lit up. And, and I, You know, we, we know, everyone knows when you're not feeling well, you don't think well. When you're tired, you don't think well. When you're hungry, you don't think well. Um, there's the stomach and the brain are kissing cousins and we're just coming to that and again it's one of those things where i think if all of the branches of, of science and social science that want to help folks work together 
boy, then we start making some strides. Well, that is so true. Now, let's talk a little more about your book and how some of those applications might take place. So, really, in summary, what you said, you don't have any specific problems with ABA. ABA is useful, and it did have uh, some reputation previously because, as all of our techniques, take psychopharmacology. I mean, you know, if you say, I do practice psychopharmacology, it's like, oh, my gosh, you've got a taint. You're, you've got, it's leprosy. I can't touch you because psychopharmacology is so erroneous. Well, if you don't look at the uh, biologic antecedents that are going on with psychopharmacology, you're going to shoot blanks. I've done it myself for years. And then you look at look, it's the same thing with psychopharmacology it is, as it is with spectrum. If you That's don't right. know what's going on with the stomach, you can throw meds at them until the cows come home and nothing happens. And you're like, well, how come I'm a treatment failure? Well, I don't know. I've tried everything I know. Well, that's the point. Well, I love it, you know, because I think it's so ironic that one of the diagnostic criteria for autism is re restricted repetitive thinking. <laughs> and I think yeah. <laughs> the yeah. professionals sometimes need to look in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, re repetitive, restrictive thinking, categorical thinking is the problem. And then the other problem, of course, is the fact that all of our diagnostic system is based upon appearances. I mean, the entire, sure. the entire situation is based on behavioral appearances, and that's a standard of care. And what you've said uh, you know, explicitly, and, I, and a number of the people we've interviewed are, are on this path, is one of the reasons we do interview them, because this entire situation of mind science needs to evolve evolve. It's going to include behavioral appearances, but that's such a limited view of humanity and, and human dynamics and, and uh, completely ignores biology. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that one. So, so then let's talk a little more about the, the application, as I was saying a moment ago, about your principles. Uh, so that was a very good example of the 16-year-old boy. So how do you actually set uh, to me, this is a very difficult question. I mean, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot because I'm thinking about myself being in this situation. And honestly, I don't have the tools. I'm looking forward to you telling us what the tools are. How do you get others into the situation? What's the structure by which you pull others into some increased level of responsibility with tools that would work in the evolution of that uh, child or that adult's uh, development? Uh Actually, I don't think it's that hard as long as they get exposed to the information because every parent wants what's best, almost every parent wants what's best for their children. And I don't think it's through a lack of trying. I think it's through a lack of structured, specific education. Um, that's what Temple and I tried really hard in the book to give example after specific example, not to theorize. And we used examples from her life, and probably half the book was quotations from the lives of the eight people interviewed so that they got the reader just get some, some real examples. And these were not eight people who had no challenges at the end of the story. It was not tied up in a nice neat bow by the end of the book. They continued to have challenges. Uh, but I really don't think it's that hard. I think it's hard because we haven't approached the parent with the tools mm -hmm. or the community or the schools. And I'm so happy to see that now there are more and more school districts, for instance, who are actually training 
teachers and teachers' aides to recognize and just real basic skills. Uh, I think we're getting there. I'm, I'm very hopeful. We're, we're evolving. So much more information is coming out uh, every day. You know, I have a Google feed that sends me information. There's new information every day coming out. And we just need to get it to the people. And we can't really expect that, well, number one, we can't expect that parents have energy to do it all themselves. And we also can't expect that parents have money to throw away and they can afford one more expensive therapy. People also in the field need to get out there and do things like social media and give some talks to their local schools and their church or synagogue and get awareness up. That's where it starts. And then it's not so hard. Well, you're certainly singing our theme. Yep. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what it's all about because, and I didn't anticipate that you were going to give that answer because I was starting to think about, uh, you know, negotiating with people and try, but really the issue is if they're educated, that is the point. That is an excellent point because then they have a specific thing. In this circumstance, this is what you do. Right. And, and it works. We've tried it and it works. And if it doesn't work, we'll tell you it doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. You know, parents uh, of kids on the spectrum are, they're my heroes and they are some tough cookies and they will use tools but they just have to be presented and they have to have help from other people because they can't do it all by themselves. They are tired. Well, and what I find with parents, uh, uh, children on the spectrum, is they're so motivated. Uh, very frequently, they've done a lot more work than some of our colleagues in terms oh. of understanding what's going on. <laughs> and they come in and say, well, like I've tried this. I look at that. I, of course, I did the genetic testing and this is what the genetic testing is. He's got a polymorphism on whatever. And the parents are coming in with professional insights based on data. Well, I'm going to tell you, when I started getting into this field of expertise, I read every memoir that I could find. I read every book that I could find, but I'll tell you the ones that taught me the most were not the ones written by the professionals. They were the ones written by the parents. Well, because they've been dealing with the reality on an everyday basis. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. If you've been out Absolutely. in the street, and you're, and you're trying to take all the knowledge that you got and you're trying to apply it, and you are frustrated, something is not working. And when you, when, you, when you face that wall of something is not working and you come up with a strategy that does work, that is, that's a narrative that anybody could identify with and, and subscribe to. Well, let me give it a try. You know, I haven't tried that. This is, this is something that might work for me and my child. Yes. Well, I tell you, I really do appreciate you coming on board, Deborah. I don't want to stop this conversation, but I want to make sure that we uh, leave with a, uh, some closing thoughts. The book, one more time, it's going to be in the show notes, is The Loving Push. It's talking about how parents and professionals can help spectrum kids become successful adults. And those of you who don't know Temple Grandin, I'll have her uh, some links on Temple in the show notes as well. She's you know, known throughout the land as a, as a thought leader, uh, an experienced individual who's contributed so much to the Spectrum community. And, uh, you know, in closing, Deborah, where would you like to send listeners to? What, what do you have a specific site, one of those sites that you would like to send people to? Uh, there's a Facebook page, Facebook uh, 
slash forward slash the loving push. Yeah, I got that. Good. Okay. And then the two LinkedIn groups are good as well. Okay. Let's see. I got that one. Did you send the LinkedIn groups over here? Because I want to make sure I put them in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Sure I'll get them. Good. I'll get them in there. Well, thank you so much, Deborah. Interesting conversation. You know, we have uh, in, in our Core Brain Journal, we've had a number of individuals who are really working on the science, who are talking about the science, and, and we just appreciate people like yourself. What you bring to the table is not only the neuroscience perspective, but you have the application of work, what works on the street level. And, and I think the concept of working with parents and working with a team, working with the community and helping the child grow within the community, that's, you know, that is, that's, where, that's where the rubber meets the road, no question about it. I think so. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. It was a delight. It was a delight, indeed. Thank you so much for coming on board. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.